welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Let's talk about guilt, shame, and second arrows as parents raising PDA children and teens. So recently I shared in Instagram stories the concept of a second arrow in Buddhism. So I want to share that with you guys here on this live and illustrate some of the primary second arrows that came up from your reactions to the question in Instagram because these are themes I also see in my coaching, in the Paradigm Shift program, and in my life. So we're going to normalize it, we're going to talk about it, and I'm going to give you some insights into how I use Buddhist psychology in order to deal with the second arrows in my life. So what do I mean by the second arrow? So let's talk about it. So the first arrow is just the experience of pain that exists in our human lives. And it's particularly acute for many of us because we're raising a child with a nervous system disability whose primary accommodation is our nervous system. So there's gonna be a lot of first arrows, especially because not many people understand our children and there's a lot of potential for pain and suffering, right? So let's do some examples. Let's say your child gets excluded from school and they're feeling sad and upset and it's impacting their self-concept, right? They're like, why can't I be in school? But it's the school who's excluded them. So the first arrow is the pain we feel as parents watching our children suffer, right? But then in comes the second arrow, which is when we make ourselves wrong for what happened and blame ourselves or have guilt because of the way we've reacted, right? So second arrow thoughts might be, this is my fault, I should have advocated harder, there's something I could do to prevent this, I'm not a good mother or father, right? So that's when the suffering comes in because the second arrow is what we're shooting at ourselves on top of the pain that we're feeling, right? Another example is, your teen has reached nervous system burnout, right? And they're hiding in their room most of the time and they don't really wanna interact with you. You know, you feel like you don't have an opportunity to support them with connection. They won't let you talk to them. They won't let you get go into their room. They're mostly on screens. However, at night when they're in their non 24 hour sleep cycle, they wanna climb into bed with you wake you up throughout the night and it's when they want to connect, right? So maybe you're exhausted, you've been worried all day because your teen's not leaving their room, they're in burnout, they're not going to school, and so you're emotionally depleted and you're climbing into bed at 11, maybe 12, and they're still up. And then at one in the morning, they're coming into the room wanting to connect and snuggle, etc. okay? So the first arrow is the worry and the pain and watching your child system burnout, which is extremely painful as parents, right? But then in comes a second arrow because when your child, your teen climbs into bed, you're thinking to yourself, 
oh, this is the last thing I want to do is be awake and connecting at one in the morning, two in the morning. You know, I don't want someone else in my bed. And then you feel really guilty because it's like, well, this is the only time I can connect with them and I should be doing more and I should want to do this, right? So that second arrow is the making yourself wrong and the guilt that comes from your human emotions, thoughts, and your own nervous system reactions by making those wrong about yourself okay so that's what I mean by the second arrow so when I was looking at what you guys responded to the question of like what is your second arrow the primary theme that came up was guilt right guilt for the nervous system reactions you had the emotions you felt and the thoughts that went through your mind on top of what's going on so I want to talk about four primary sources of guilt one, guilt that you caused PDA or that you could be doing something better or in a more intense way to prevent all activation in the nervous system. Two, guilt about siblings and the impact of your PDA child or children's behavior and needs on your si the siblings. Three, guilt about your own nervous system reactivity, whether you're just exhausted, burned out, anxious, or have a nervous system disability yourself and our PDA. And then fourth, guilt about the grief, resentment, and anger you feel about the fact that you are raising a child with a disability or a teen with a disability and feeling that you shouldn't feel that way. So these are the four primary second arrows of guilt that I want to talk about and then bring a small tool from Buddhism for you so that you can bring self-compassion and not beat yourself up and suffer more on top of what you're already going through. And these are things that I felt and lots of parents feel and that I grapple with as well. Okay, so the first is guilt that you caused PDA or guilt that you caused trauma for your PDA child or both. Okay, so I have certainly felt this and it's specifically, I have felt that I created trauma with my son, especially around eating, which is his stickiest basic need, and through my strict and traditional parenting, pre-burnout, not understanding the mechanisms and root causes of his behavior. Okay, so what did I do when he was, you know, three, four, moving into continually escalated behavior, more defiant, more oppositional, I didn't know he was PDA or neurodivergent, I responded with what the pediatricians and research and books told me to do, which is to have firm and strict consequences and limits and boundaries, right? And actually, I started with one, two, three magic and timeouts. So there were actual times where I would put my son in timeout for doing something and hold the door shut so he couldn't get out, right? So what's happening in those moments? He's already in his survival brain and his body is experiencing fight flight, right? So it's driving him deeper into the quote defiant behavior and he's destroying things in the room he's trying to get out he's screaming he's kicking the door and i'm viewing it through i need to extinguish this behavior by doing what the pediatrician told me to do so i'm actually holding the door shut driving him deeper into fight or flight which is escalating the behavior 
Additionally, on the eating front, he's increasingly not eating. So what am I doing? I'm following all the advice about, okay, he needs to sit at the table. You need to sit with him. You need home cooked meals. You need to have consistent meal times and snack times. He can't eat in between them. So he's hungry enough and he needs to have consequences. He can't leave the table. He needs to eat whatever I put in front of him or he goes hungry and he doesn't get dessert, okay? So I enforced all of these things. Every time I'm enforcing this, what's happening? I'm activating his threat response and on a subconscious level, he is perceiving that he's going to die, okay? And his nervous system is reacting. Not only is he having fight-flight behavior, but his entire nervous system is increasing his sensory sensitivity, which is what happens when you're in panic mode. And he's actually starting to vomit and gag because his tactile and like taste and smell sensitivities are exacerbated, okay? So this is all from things that I did, right? Like these were choices I made, these were things I did, and what happened? It completely ruptured our relationship. He moved into nervous system burnout, which he was already moving into because I had had another baby and I wasn't able to provide complete one-on-one attention like I had intuitively done before my second child. And third, I completely traumatized him around his relationship with food, something that four plus years later, we're still digging out of, right? There were two years in there where he only ate literally popcorn and pirate's booty, and I was not sure how he was growing and getting enough caloric intake, okay? So I have experienced this guilt of like, I caused his trauma, right? And the pattern I see when working with hundreds of families is that this is often the case, right? Where without knowing, we're either putting our children into a school, usually a public school, and that's what like starts the nervous system burnout just because of the structure of school itself. Not because the teachers are bad, not because school is bad, but because it's just a system that presents constant losses of autonomy and equality, which sets off the nervous system. Second, children who get diagnosed with ADHD or autism earlier on are put in behavioral modification programs or applied behavioral therapy, which then leads to burnout because the entire premise is reward sanctions. You know, you're trying to ensure that they comply and have certain behaviors, which is just activating that survival brain or like me parenting, right? So there is this causality that is present for all of us, whether it's the decision to put your kid in ABA because that's what the doctor told you to do once you got an autism diagnosis, putting your child in public school because that's what you do, (laughs) or because you're told to parent in a certain way and you're told if your child has this really difficult behavior, you need to be stricter with consequences, okay? So this guilt that you caused trauma is profound and ever-present for parents like us. So the thing I do want to clarify, though, is that you did not cause PDA, okay? You did not cause your child's neurotype. You did not cause them to have an autistic regression. You merely did not know or understand how your child's nervous system worked, and therefore they had an accumulation of nervous system activation that over time tipped them past their threshold, and then they went into burnout or got close to it. 
okay? And that's what allowed you, whether your child is 18 or four, to see the truth of their situation and your situation. And there's no way you could have known, okay? So one thing that I bring from like yoga and my Buddhist practice is the concept of like, you can begin fresh at any moment right? And like when I meditate, for example, my mind is like the most ridiculous cesspool and whirlpool of negative thoughts, right? Like intrusive thoughts constantly going off in a million directions. And one of the things that's helped me about meditation and also yoga is this concept of like, we just return, right? We just notice like, oh, there's a thought or thought form and then we just return to a baseline of like feeling where our body is in space or we fall out of a yoga pose and we get back in right so I use this mantra of you can begin fresh at any moment on a macro scale of like you know maybe I'm like not accommodating as much as I should be I'm not dedicating as much one-on-one attention as I feel like I could because I'm really trying to grow my business and support parents and then I'm just like I can begin fresh at any moment right? Or in a day, like if you're reactive and something happens, rather than shooting yourself with a second arrow and making yourself bad, knowing that it's human and we can begin fresh at any moment, okay? The second source of guilt that came up from you guys, and I understand deeply, (laughs) is guilt about the impact of raising a PDA child or teen on siblings, Okay, whether this is equalizing or destructive behavior towards the sibling directly or the amount of time, energy, finances that you must allocate in order to totally accommodate your PDA child or teen as having a nervous system disability, right? So this has certainly been true in my family. This has been a source of guilt and a second arrow for me as well. And feel free to tap the heart if you identify with this, where you feel deeply guilty about the impact on siblings. Okay, so I'm going to tell you guys a little story and the like second arrow thought I had (laughs) when my children were younger. So my older son, my PDA son Cooper was about six. And yeah, I see a lot of you guys tapping the hearts because this is a big one, right? And my younger son, William, was two. So six and two. This is the heart and in the throes of nervous system burnout. We had just moved to Michigan. I was a full-time caregiver, okay? And I was doing bedtime by myself with both of them. And I was giving them both a bath upstairs and my husband wasn't home because he was, you know, out doing work that he had to do because he had an intense job. And so I didn't have a choice. Like I had to get both of them in bed, right? And I remember trying to wrangle them out of the bathtub and the two-year-old got out before my PDA son, which we all know immediately activates that nervous system because it's like, oh, the two-year-old is above because they're first, right? <laughs> they they get to do something first. So they're like not equal to and the two-year-old's above the PDA child, which immediately sets off the threat response and fight flight. And at this time, my son was so close to his threshold all the time, something like that would set him off into violent fight flight behavior, right? So my two-year-old has gone into his room, into my PDA son's room, 
which is another loss of autonomy and making him feel like he's below the two-year-old because he didn't consent to the two-year-old going in the room. But he's a toddler, so he's like running around and naked, you know? And so I'm trying to be like, William, can you please go in your room? He's not listening. And my PDA son gets out of the tub completely naked. He falls on the ground, hurts himself, but barrels towards my two-year-old and like shoves him over and I'm physically separating them and both of them are screaming and I'm like and it's like a homing device right you guys know this when there's a limit set the PD the especially young PDA or who's near burnout is gonna like it's like a magnet if the limit is don't touch your brother it's gonna be a fixation on touching your brother and I remember feeling as a mother like how can families survive this like how can everybody stay alive. How can, evolutionarily speaking, families continue on? Like, how do they survive this? And I truly, like I told my husband when he came home, of course I was like devastated and distraught and traumatized. Like, I don't understand how families stay alive. Like, how do they do this, right? And that's like at the crux of my work here with you guys, because I was like, I am traumatizing the younger sibling and I can't keep him safe and I'm a terrible mother and I was just like shooting myself with these second arrows, right? And so one of the things that I've had to work on and we work on in the Paradigm Shift program together over and over and over again because it's not easy is radically accepting what's true. So there are three things that are true in situations like this. One, I have a child with a disability. That's the truth. Two, because I have a child with a disability, it will impact the other child. Even if this was another disability where like the expression of the disability wasn't behavioral and targeting my other child, raising a child with a disability impacts siblings. Full stop, right? Like, and, and I've thought about this a lot and looked to the other way outside of neurodiversity communities to think about like disability, right? Like when you have a child with a disability, for example, you know, a child in a wheel wheelchair or if they're deaf or blind or whatever it is, there's gonna need to be a lot more accommodations, attention and support to that child. That's just the way it is, right? And it does impact siblings, but that is not something we can change right? That's what we're radically accepting here. And when we radically accept that that's true, instead of trying to make it different, right? Like, what should I be doing to make this not happen, right? Whereas we can radically accept this is part of the disability and it will impact the sibling. By radically accepting that constraint, we can actually start to transcend it. Because as soon as we stop trying to change what we can't change, then we can start to create movement and focus on the other areas where we might have more control. Okay, so for my family, one of the things that we had to do was set up structurally how to separate the kids more, right? Like, because I couldn't stop it. Like, I couldn't stop the physical aggression against my two kids, against my younger son, who, by the way, fifth birthday today, feel really excited about that. And <laughs> for a long time, I was very worried about his trauma. And I remember watching his little body whenever he heard Cooper's voice or when Cooper would come home from being somewhere else. And I would watch him. Like I would watch him have a startle reflex. He would go into hypervigilance and he would just completely change his demeanor. And this was another thing that I had to radically accept. And part of my cost-benefit decision-making 
which is something I teach in the Paradigm Shift program. We have a whole framework for it. Like, I may need to figure out a way to separate these kids because it's not safe, right? And so then we get to the third type of guilt because the decision we made was actually to set up infrastructure to mostly keep our kids apart, including holidays, including vacations, including weekends. And I do know that some of you, you know, there's different structural constraints for households right? Some of you are single parents. Some of you have partners who have big jobs and are traveling all the time and you're a sole caregiver. Your constraint may be different than mine, but the concept is the same. Radically accepting the constraints so that over the long term we can transcend them. That's the like takeaway from Buddhism (laughs) that I'm sharing on that point. Okay, so third, the separating the kids brings up a lot of grief. It's brought up resentment, it's brought up anger, and it's brought up pain, right? Where it's like, I'm pissed off that my kids can't have a holiday together. I'm pissed off that, you know, I can't have a Christmas morning with all, both of my children, and that I can't spend my holidays with my husband. That freaking sucks, right? So at its core, these are the human emotions that we feel because of the trade-offs that are present with raising a child with a nervous system disability. So this narrative that I think is misguided about if you feel grief about raising a child who's neurodivergent, then you are grieving the living child. That is not my perspective. Why? Because to me, the cost-benefit decision-making and trade-offs you make are part and parcel to accommodating and recognizing that your child has needs. And there's grief there, okay? Let me give you an example. Small trade-offs. My house is always messy. It's disorganized. It doesn't look nice. I don't have things framed. I don't have all my kids' like pictures and all the things that they've drawn and binders that I don't have like baby books. I just haven't been able to do that, right? Why? Because I'm choosing to accommodate my PDA son most of the time one-on-one attention and therefore there's a trade-off a cost and i have grief about that okay my house is dark most of the time when my kids are home why because they have sensitivity to light i hate living in the dark i can't see anything i'm an old woman right these are small (laughs) trade-offs and every time i'm in my living room you know near the tv room it's like two different youtubes going on full blast okay and i freaking hate it I freaking hate it. I'm like someone who, when I was in my doctorate program, what did I love doing? I literally spent like 10 hours a day reading, writing, and in libraries. And if I wasn't there, I was in a yoga class, okay? So like, I do not like lots of noise and lots of like pinging and bright lights. Like that's not me. I'm not a dopamine seeker in that way. But I have accepted these small trade-offs and I'm allowed to have grief about it because it's actually a reflection of the fact that I'm accommodating my kid. I wouldn't have grief if I didn't change my life and I was just going off and doing the same thing that I was before. There's nothing to grieve because I'm not adjusting my life, right? So I don't get this narrative about like, you know, you're a bad parent because there's grief with your autistic child. Like, I don't think that captures what's actually going on. Second, large trade-offs. The type of career you can have if you're accommodating, right? If you're lowering demands, providing autonomy, and allowing your child to like sometimes be above you, you're not going to be able to get to work on time, 
right? If you, your child needs one-on-one -on -one attention all the time and, and like has to leave from school or has like can only access partial days, both parents can't have the professional careers that they wanted to have. That's just a fact. Again, constraints, right? So like you're allowed to feel grief about that. You're allowed to feel resentment and making yourself wrong about that is the second arrow. And that's where the suffering comes in. Not leaving the house, right? Like parents, especially in burnout, like when you want to leave the house and there's a cost, like if you go out to have coffee with your friend, there's a cost to your child's nervous system because you're the primary accommodation. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. This is super grievy and it brings up resentment and it brings up anger, okay? And my opinion, this is all a natural human response to the fact that you're making trade-offs to support your child, okay? Splitting the kids, grief, grief. And so here's the thing, instead of making yourself wrong and feeling shame and like being in circles in the neurodiversity <laughs> space that are gonna make you wrong for having these feelings, what we can do is we can bring Buddhist principles again to this and know I am a divine human light that can never be corrupted. My thoughts, my emotions, and my nervous system reactions are not who I am, okay? And instead of avoiding or denying that this is going on, I can observe without judgment that this is what's coming up for me and let it pass through, okay? Because anyone, and I get this comment a lot and I really don't like it and I will delete it. Like I won't block you, but I'll, I'll delete it because I think it's wrong. <laughs> it sounds like you're grieving a living child and it's just this like knee jerk reaction. And actually I think when people project that onto my page, I'm like, they're denying the grief that they feel when they've had to make all these trade-offs in their life and they're pissed off about it and so they're commenting on my page. Finally, guilt about your own reactivity. Okay, this is a big one. Whether you're PDA, whether you're autistic, ADHD, highly sensitive nervous system, anxious, or neurotypical. All of us have nervous system activation around our kids. Why? Because they're having a nervous system response and we're wired to respond when we see the people we love in pain and suffering. And what is pain and suffering? It's like the sounds, the movements, the facial expressions, all the expressions of what your child's body would do if they were like getting attacked by a lion. So like, of course you're gonna have nervous system reactivity, okay? So two things, like one thing that I work on is the first step, recognizing the activation, right? Like I feel pain in my chest or my hands are tingling, or like I'm starting to see double vision and disassociating, right? And it's like observing that without judgment of like, okay, this too, like this is part of my human experience. And remembering that even if your nervous system is a very integral part of your human experience, which it is for me, right? I've been diagnosed with panic disorder. I've been diagnosed with OCD. I have had panic attacks since I was 26 and it was debilitating to me. And I've had nervous system burnout more than once. And I have a history of disassociation. Okay. So this is something I work on a lot. 
even if I don't identify as PDA or autistic, it does not mean that as a human, I don't experience a life that is very defined by my nervous system physical reactions, okay? And this is true for you as well. So you are not those reactions. That's not who you are. It's something that you experience, right? And so we don't need to make ourselves wrong for having those sensations, right? And sometimes we act on them because we're human, right? And so again, we go back to the other concept of you can begin fresh at any moment. We don't need to shoot ourselves with a second arrow. So that is my coffee with Casey on the guilt, shame, and second arrows that we feel as parents of PDA children and teens. And at least what I hope for you guys is this plants a seed to reduce the unnecessary suffering that comes from making ourselves wrong for our human experience. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.